You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, A journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 37, Breaking the Pendulum. Thanks for joining me. In this episode, we'll return to Paris and see what was going on in French politics while Napoleon was busy defeating the Austrians. The last time we looked at this topic was way back in episode 22, when we saw the brand new directory successfully defend itself from a right-wing insurrection, with a little help from a young Corsican artillery officer. We've talked a little bit about the Directory since then. In episode 24, I went over some of the achievements of this much maligned government. The Directory improved France's financial position, professionalized the civil service, and imposed a measure of stability on a country that desperately needed it. In this episode, we're going to look at some of the political developments under the Directory, which will bring the ugly sides of this regime into sharp focus. In case anyone needs a refresher, the Directory is the generic name we give to the system of government enshrined in the Constitution of Year 3, but that name comes from a specific institution within the government, a committee of five directors who served as the executive branch. The guiding principle of the system was indirect democracy. Each region of France elected an assembly. The members of these assemblies selected the members of the national legislature from among themselves. Every year, one of the five directors was chosen at random to leave office and be replaced by a nominee from the legislature, thus theoretically ensuring healthy levels of both continuity and turnover. The Constitution of Year 3 had been written with clear separations of powers between the branches of government, with the goal of preventing the monopolization of power by any single clique within the system, as had happened with the Committee of Public Safety under the previous Constitution. But these separations of powers weren't enough. The directors weren't as heavy-handed as the old Committee of Public Safety, but they quickly emerged as the dominant branch of the government. The Constitution of Year 3 did not usher in an era of democracy, or even of constitutional government. French politics became increasingly restricted to the confines of the directory itself, as its five members jockeyed for power. Anyone outside the system who attempted to influence politics found themselves shut out, and often repressed. The Directory was born in civil strife, amid the uprising of 13 Vendémiaires on the 5th of October, 1795. The insurrection occurred because French politics worked like a pendulum. 
After the fall of Robespierre and the suppression of the Jacobins, the pendulum swung right, and conservative royalists grew in influence. This peaked in their attempted seizure of power in Vendémiaire. To suppress the uprising, the Directory had relied on the left. They whipped up revolutionary fervor in the working-class districts of Paris, distributed arms to the sans-culottes, and allowed purged Jacobin military officers to rejoin the army. This strategy succeeded in defeating the royalist uprising, but with the right suppressed and the left empowered, the pendulum began to swing the other direction once again. The original Jacobin leaders were gone, dead either at the front or under the guillotine alongside Robespierre, or had repudiated their views and joined the centrists. But the same currents that had motivated the original Jacobins were still rippling through French politics. The Directory's economic policies had stabilized the government's own balance sheets somewhat, but did little to improve the still desperate conditions of average people. Inflation and volatile prices were still howling at the doors of the working classes, and even the lower middle classes. The rich were comfortable once again, and enjoyed the decadent permissive atmosphere ushered in by the Directory, but not everyone was pleased. True believers in the ideals of the revolution longed for a return to the atmosphere of patriotism and civic duty that had prevailed under the Jacobins. Some even whispered that the new government had betrayed the revolution. This resurgent left-wing movement didn't necessarily embrace the entire legacy of the original Jacobins, but they believed the revolution had gone off track, and whatever his faults, they identified the fall of Robespierre as the moment things began to go wrong. Modern historians have dubbed this movement the Neo-Jacobins. Material conditions drove more and more people into their ranks. The winter of 1795 through 6 was hard. The weather was worse than usual, and grain shipments were disrupted by the war. The new hit song in the cafes of Paris was called Dying of Hunger, Dying of Cold. The song was written by a fringe political agitator named Gracchus Babeuf. He was born François-Noël Babeuf, but after the revolution, changed his name to Gracchus, after the family of populist reformers in ancient Rome. Babeuf had been around since the early days of the revolution, but always as an obscure figure, toiling away at minor government posts and small newspapers. He was a Jacobin, but too low-profile to be swept up in the wave of arrests after Thermidor. Babeuf's ideas were radical so radical that by 1795, he was no longer welcome at the Jacobin Club. He founded his own group, the Society of Equals, where he preached the overthrow of the government, the return of the old Jacobin constitution, and total social and economic equality. That last point is particularly important. The Jacobins may have been radicals, but they were still fundamentally within the liberal tradition. They had wanted the revolution to sweep away the old vestiges of feudalism. They were implacable opponents of inherited, noble privilege, but had much less to say about other kinds of social inequality, particularly the privileges of wealth. Remember, many of the Jacobins were relatively well-to-do people—doctors, merchants, civil servants, and especially lawyers. These certainly weren't the wealthiest men in France, but they generally had enough property and a comfortable enough lifestyle that the idea of radical redistribution of wealth gave them pause. Indeed, some more conservative Jacobins actually believed that their wealth entitled them to elite social position. They opposed feudal privilege not out of some belief in equality, 
but because they wanted it replaced by the privilege of wealth, which they considered a true measure of a person's merit. Babeuf and his Society of Equals could not have disagreed more. He spoke of a second, greater revolution, which would abolish economic inequality, just as the first revolution had ended feudal social inequality. The society summed up its philosophy this way, quote, Nature has given every man equal right to the possession of all property. The goal of this organization is to defend that equality, so often attacked by the strong and the wicked. In a proper society, there should be neither rich nor poor. End quote. Babeuf's ideas were very close to what we today would call socialism. Indeed, Karl Marx's own critique of the revolution half a century later would closely echo Babeuf's, leading some historians to label him the first socialist. Unlike even the most radical neo-Jacobins, Babeuf was totally unapologetic in his defense of the mob violence and bloody purges that had occurred during the heady days of the 1790s. This was the final straw that got him banned from the Jacobin Club. He believed in the necessity of political violence, that the only way forward was for a small group of dedicated radicals to seize power and change society by force. This stance would be taken up by future advocates of armed revolution, like Georges Sorel, Luigi Galliani, and Vladimir Lenin, and even Benito Mussolini. At first, Babeuf's Society of Equals was a marginal group, known only among the dwindling circle of intellectuals and professional radicals who had survived the purge of the Jacobins. But as the political pendulum swung left after Vendemiaire, they began to grow in numbers and influence. As conditions grew worse in the harsh winter, Babeuf's uncompromising attacks on the government and program of radical economic transformation began to ring true for many of those who suffered. The Society of Equals remained small. Historians estimate it peaked at under 300 core members. But suddenly, people were talking about them and listening to their message. They were winning over passive supporters and sympathizers, and not only among the poor. Civil servants and soldiers were paid in the government's paper money, and their salaries and savings were being destroyed by inflation. That is, when they were paid at all. All too often, the directory could only afford to issue IOUs. Meanwhile, prices skyrocketed all winter. Relatively few bureaucrats or soldiers actually joined, but many began to sympathize with Babeuf's movement, to look at him as someone who was on their side and spoke up for them. These are the types of people you need on your side if you're going to mount a coup or an uprising. Babeuf's talk of overthrowing the government had sounded like a crackpot's pipe dream only months before. But as 1795 turned into 1796, it was turning into something serious. The Directory was not blind to this threat. They had learned the lessons of the failed governments before them and developed a formidable secret police to monitor radicals like Babeuf. As the Society of Equals grew, some of its new recruits were paid informants and undercover police officers. In late winter, Babeuf and his associates began making concrete plans for an insurrection against the Directory. Little did they know, spies within the movement provided the government with daily reports of their progress. Babeuf set May 11th, 1796 as the date for the uprising. I don't think they would have stood a chance, but we'll never know for sure, because on May 10th, soldiers and police launched a massive sweep through Paris 
arresting nearly every member of the Society of Equals. Under the Directory's orders, prominent leaders from the left wing of the Neo-Jacobin faction were detained as well. This was a general crackdown on the entire left, not just a suppression of Babeuf and his co-conspirators. During the summer and fall of 1796, there were attempts by left-wing radicals to launch insurrections or orchestrate mob violence to free the prisoners, but these were poorly organized and quickly crushed. The trials began in early 1797. To the Directory's credit, these were real rigorous proceedings, not kangaroo courts. Babeuf and the other leaders of the Society of Equals were sentenced to death or deportation to the disease-ridden penal colonies in French Guiana, which was nearly the same thing. However, most of the defendants who were not members of the Society and had not taken part in the conspiracy were actually acquitted. The radical Jacobin leaders were freed, but the damage to the left was done. In the months after the conspiracy, left-wing groups were dogged by official harassment in the name of security. Prosecutors had deliberately dragged their heels, letting the accused languish in jail for nearly a year before they saw trial. Every day they spent in jail was a day they were off the political stage. The Directory had also used the publicity around the trial to tarnish the public image of the Neo-Jacobins. The pro-government press dwelled on the most violent, radical aspects of Babeuf's movement, and worked to associate the popular mainstream left with that caricature whenever possible. In reality, the Neo-Jacobins had shunned Babeuf, but some of their ideas did sound similar, and many of their more radical leaders were on trial right alongside the Society of Equals. And so, the Directory found it very easy to imply connections where hardly any existed. The left's momentum had been successfully broken, but remember, French politics were operating like a pendulum. The downfall of the left could only lead to one thing, and it wasn't moderation, centrism, or stability. The royalist right was now poised for another comeback, and the timing could not have been worse for the Directory. A general election was right around the corner. This would be the first real consequential vote under the new constitution. Elections had been held in 1795 as well, but only one-third of the seats in the legislature were up for re-election at a time, so this was the first election in which the balance of power was truly up for grabs. The government had good reason to believe things would not go their way. The economy was bad, and constant cycles of repression had made the Directory a lot of enemies. By now, Bonaparte had signed the Peace of Leoben with the Austrians. The war was effectively over. You might think the ceasefire would have benefited centrist, pro-directory Republican candidates, that voters would go to the ballot box seeking to reward the government that had delivered peace and victory. However, the prevailing mood remained solidly against the directory. Napoleon himself had managed to take the lion's share of public acclaim for France's victory, followed by the other Republican generals and the institution of the army itself. The government had taken all the blame for the privations and sacrifices of war, then they got precious little credit for actually winning it. So, the government was unpopular and on the verge of being swept away by a royalist tide at the ballot box. The time had clearly come for the Directory to swing that pendulum back to the left, just as they had on 13 Vendémiaire. The Directory and the Neo-Jacobins might not have liked each other, but they at least had a common interest in defending the Republic from the specter of royalism, right? Well, that's not how things turned out. 
Perhaps someone in the directory should have considered this possibility months earlier, when they were ruthlessly breaking the power of the Neo-Jacobins. Even if the left had been willing to bury the hatchet in the name of protecting the revolution, they were far too weak to be of any use. The left-wing newspapers and magazines that could have been harnessed to publish pro-Republican propaganda had all been shut down. The neo-Jacobin political clubs that might have mobilized Republican sympathizers were all shuttered. The leaders who might have rallied people in the name of liberty, equality, and brotherhood were imprisoned on flimsy charges or discredited by the directory's slanders. And so, when the polls opened in the spring of 1797, the Republicans of the center and the left stayed home. Turnout is hard to estimate, but it may have been under 10%. Only the highly motivated royalist right showed up at the polls in any significant numbers. The result was a landslide. Once the local electoral assemblies took their seats, they nominated new members for 177 seats in the lower house of the national legislature. Of these 177 seats, only 28 went to confirmed stalwart Republicans, just 15% of the total. 44 seats went to independents with no clear ideological affiliation. A whopping 105 seats were won by conservatives. This was the nightmare scenario for the directory. Once the incoming legislatures took their seats in the fall, the conservatives would become the largest bloc in parliament. The right still wouldn't have an absolute majority, but if they were effective at courting independence, they might easily dominate the next legislature. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The elections were not the only threat to the directory. The institution was also being torn apart from within by rivalries and factionalism between the directors. This was a five-man committee, with decisions made by majority vote, so there was not much space to form cliques. You definitely didn't want to be one of the two directors left out of a three-man faction. But by early 1797, the committee had fallen into exactly that pattern. Three like-minded directors grew closer leaving their two colleagues increasingly marginalized. The majority faction was composed of two ex-Jacobin lawyers, Louis-Marie de la Revelière Le Pau and Jean-François Rubel, and our old friend Paul Barra. Left out in the cold were a career diplomat, François-Marie Barthélemy, and Lazare Carnot, the reforming military theorist who we've met in previous episodes. This split is sometimes depicted as an ideological divide between the center-left majority faction and the center-right minority, but I don't think that's the best way to look at it. For starters, both factions were composed of Republicans who had gotten their start on the left of revolutionary politics. All of them had moved to the right since then, more out of necessity than sincere conversion. These men were survivors, first and foremost. 
They had eschewed strong ideological commitments years ago in favor of the cold logic of self-preservation. They themselves conceived of their differences as interpersonal rivalries, not principled political differences. However you want to think about these conflicts, by the spring of 1797, they had become so profound that the two sides could no longer cooperate at any level. As the political pendulum swung right and the conservatives in the legislature grew bolder, the members of the majority faction began to suspect that right-wing attacks on the government were orchestrated behind the scenes by Carnot and Barthélemy. Of course, the formation of a coherent opposition party is an entirely normal, healthy, and predictable outcome in an emerging parliamentary system, but that's not how the majority faction saw it. Here's how Paul Barra described the situation in his memoirs. Quote, Carnot and Barthélemy refused to append their signatures to the motion. It would seem that this was done deliberately, and that henceforth, the decisions of the directory will bear no more than three signatures. They cannot prevent three from constituting a majority, but they are appealing to the outside public. End quote. In case that's not clear, the internal deliberations of the directory were secret, and the decrees were always signed by all five members, so the decisions always appeared unanimous, even if they were only passed by a simple majority. By withholding their signatures, Carnot and Barthélemy were making their objections to the legislation public. Anyway, continuing from Barra's memoirs, quote, This pair of dissenters display, nevertheless, great circumspection in their speeches, and even in their looks. They have resolved upon a charade in order to carry on their secret government. The diatribes they inspire against the three directors are at the top of the agenda in the legislature. Their agents are actively engaged in sowing fear among patriots. Compromise is whispered to some, division to others. End quote. Even after all those years, I think you can feel Barra's paranoia. Just as a side note, that phrase, secret government, is gouvernement occulte in the original French, which I think you could also loosely translate as deep state, which might give you some sense of what we're dealing with here. The majority faction of the directors viewed any opposition as sedition, and how can you tolerate sedition within the highest levels of government? French politics was headed for another ugly showdown. The triumph of the right in the elections of September 1797 brought the situation to a head. If one of the three directors from the majority faction was chosen to step down next year, and his replacement chosen by the incoming, conservative-dominated legislature, that new director would almost certainly align himself with Carnot and Barthélemy, and the minority faction would become the new majority. It's a little convoluted because of the weirdness of the directory system, but what I'm describing here is essentially just the peaceful transfer of power after the government is defeated in an election, a routine occurrence in any reasonably healthy democracy. But France was not a healthy democracy in 1797. The directors had learned very different lessons about power than you or I, lessons drilled in by years of terror and bloodshed. They had seen how relinquishing power meant it would be seized by one's enemies and used to wreak vengeance. In modern Western countries, presidents and prime ministers can usually look forward to comfortable think tank or university posts, 
paid speaking tours, self-indulgent memoirs, and feel-good charity work. French politicians of the Revolutionary Era believed relinquishing power led only to disgrace, prison, and the guillotine. The majority faction also had less self-centered reasons to cling to power. Carnot and Barthélemy were not royalists, but it was an open secret that almost every conservative member of the legislature was. Who knew what the minority faction might do, or be forced to do, if they found themselves relying on the conservatives to govern? Allowing the right into the ruling coalition could spell the end of the republic. Is allowing a peaceful transfer of power still the right thing to do for democracy if it leads directly to the death of democracy? Even in the healthiest of parliamentary systems, gracefully accepting political defeat is often hard for selfish, prideful politicians like the directors. Throw in the fears of imprisonment, execution, and the return of the monarchy, and it was simply not an option the majority faction was willing to contemplate. They resolved to act, and not only against the newly elected royalists, but against their fellow directors as well. The question was, how? The majority faction was too weak to move against all its enemies alone. They needed allies with enough political clout to move against members of the executive branch of government, and enough muscle to overpower any popular unrest from supporters of the conservatives. With the government unpopular and the organized left in shambles, only one institution in France fit the bill, the army. Fortunately for the majority faction, a loyal Republican general had just provided them with the ideal pretext for a purge. Down in Milan, Napoleon Bonaparte had uncovered a royalist spy ring with scandalous connections to legal conservative politics. In short, treason. During the first Italian campaign, it came to light that a mole within the Army of Italy was passing secrets from army headquarters to the coalition. Interestingly, the identity of that mole remains a mystery today. However, as Bonaparte investigated the leak, he uncovered a spy ring in northern Italy. His agents discovered hard evidence that one of its leaders had acted as an intermediary for secret communications between the exiled royal house of Bourbon and General Charles Pichegru, a senior military officer and one of the most prominent leaders of the conservative political faction. In public, the conservatives always played very coy with their royalism. They never left much doubt as to what they stood for, but they were always careful to stop short of openly calling for the return of the former royal family, or the total repeal of the Republican Constitution, either of which could easily be construed as treason. In documents captured by Bonaparte's agents, there was concrete proof that this public legal face of the conservative movement was nothing but a mask, obscuring a much more reactionary and possibly illegal agenda. Napoleon sent the documents to Barra, and the plotting began. The coup would be orchestrated by the three directors of the majority faction, backed up by a division of soldiers. The plotter's first choice to be military point man for the coup was General Lazar Osh, commander-in-chief of the Army of the Sambre and Meuse, and probably the second most popular and capable soldier in France, after Bonaparte. Osh was well-known as a hardcore Republican with left-wing sympathies. He had commanded the Republican forces in the Vendée against the Royalist counter-revolutionaries, where he had used a carrot-and-stick approach, holding out the promise of reconciliation to anyone willing to take it, 
and ruthlessly hounding any who refused. This was just the type of man they were looking for. Not only had Osh proven his Republican bona fides in the field, he was a genuine idealist, and therefore not as ambitious or pushy as Bonaparte. Napoleon had already defended the government's interests by force once, on 13 Vendémiaire. How would it look if they had to rely on the same man a second time? And what would he demand in return? And so the majority faction informed General Osh that a royalist plot against the Republic was underway, and implored him to discreetly move a division of his army to bases outside Paris and report to them for further instructions. Osh was wary. He was a committed Republican, and bringing a field army into the capital, as he was clearly about to be asked to do, violated the Constitution. But the evidence of General Pichegru's treachery overcame his scruples. But when Osh and his men arrived in Paris, there was a problem. The more details the general heard of the majority faction's plan, the less he liked it. He had marched on the capital to defend democracy, whatever was left of it. Instead, he found himself waist-deep in a transparent scheme to arrest the political enemies of the ruling clique, including many constitutionally elected representatives, whose only provable crime was their affiliation with the opposition. Osh was caught in a bind. His principles precluded any involvement in this deeply undemocratic enterprise. But if he ordered his men to stand down and return to the front, it might tip the scales the other direction and lead to the Republicans being purged by the rising conservative faction, and eventually the restoration of the monarchy. That option was not acceptable to him either. And so, with no good alternatives, Osh simply got up and left. He returned to his army headquarters unannounced, leaving his men behind in the capital, without giving them any orders to participate in the coup. Some historians have framed Osh's sudden flight as panic but I think if you look at his motivations, it was a very smart move. Without clear word from their commander, Osh's men would be unlikely to involve themselves in the majority faction's schemes. However, if the royalists really did try something, either under their own initiative or in response to the coup, that division would be on hand to defend the Republic. If Osh was out, there was only one other general the directors considered politically reliable enough to provide troops for the coup. They had no choice but to deal with Bonaparte. Still wary of his ambitions, the plotters suggested he send a subordinate to lead a division to Paris, rather than coming himself. Napoleon didn't fight them on this. Maybe he wanted to maintain some distance from the coup, in case it failed or proved unpopular. Or maybe he simply understood that this was a huge political win for him, even if he wasn't there to savor it personally, and so didn't press the issue. General Pierre Augereau was selected to go to Paris. This had to do in part with his vocal and deeply held hatred of the aristocracy. But probably more significantly, Napoleon believed he was too unsophisticated and loudish to ever develop into a serious political rival. On July 27th, Napoleon sent a seemingly innocuous report to the Directory. Quote, General Augereau has asked for leave to go to Paris, where he is called by personal business. End quote. Only the three directors of the majority faction understood its true significance. The coup was on. Bonaparte sent more than just Augereau and a division of soldiers to Paris. 
He also entrusted an aide with three million francs of his own personal money to buy influence and grease the skids for the coup. According to some estimates, this was nearly all of Napoleon's personal wealth. He may have actually gone into debt to finance this operation. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Meanwhile, the emboldened conservatives in the legislature were pulling the country to the right as quickly as they could. They repealed laws against the Catholic clergy who had stayed loyal to the Vatican and made overtures to the emigres. The new president of the lower house, equivalent to speaker of the house in the American system, was none other than Charles Pichegru, the very same right-wing general who Napoleon had discovered plotting with the House of Bourbon. Bad feelings were in the air. Out in the country, ordinary conservatives took the new right-wing atmosphere in the legislature as license to restart the so-called White Terror, a wave of violent attacks on anyone associated with the government or the left, similar to those that had occurred after the fall of Robespierre. The discourse in the political press became even more poisonous and hysterical than usual. The camps outside Paris swelled with fresh soldiers. Troops on leave in the city brawled with gangs of right-wing youth. A confrontation was clearly coming, but what form would it take? On September 3rd, the people of France got their answer, or so it seemed. Pichegru officially asked the legislature to impeach the directors. The conservative endgame was finally revealed, a totally legal seizure of the executive branch, using the mechanisms of the very constitution they sought to overturn. The long-awaited confrontation had indeed come, but it would be fought out with force of arms, not by parliamentary procedure. The coup plotters put their plans into action immediately, before any impeachment proceedings could begin. Early in the morning of September 4th, 18 Fructidor on the Republican calendar, at around 3 a.m., Parisians began waking up to the sounds of soldiers on the streets. 12,000 seasoned veterans of the Army of Italy, with 50 cannon, occupied the city, seizing government buildings and key strategic points. The main detachment took up positions around the Tuileries Palace, the seat of the legislature. The city gates were locked and placed under guard. Mail service was suspended. Newspaper offices were seized. The only information available to the public came in the form of notices plastered all over Paris, laying out the coup plotters' claims of a traitorous royalist conspiracy and presenting the evidence against General Pichegru. General Augereau was informed that the people were afraid. He scoffed, quote, Paris has nothing to fear from me. I am a Paris boy myself, end quote. With the city firmly in the grips of the plotters, the roundups began. Over 200 opponents of the majority faction were detained, including the vast majority of the right wing of the legislature. Director Lazar Carnot was tipped off at the last moment and escaped, but he was one of the very few. The coup was executed so quickly and in such secrecy, hardly anyone had seen it coming. Carnot was nicknamed the Organizer of Victory for his tireless efforts to reform and manage the French army. 
He had survived and remained in the government through all the ups and downs of the revolution, but his luck had finally run out. He fled east, finding sanctuary in Germany. But his exile would prove temporary. We haven't heard the last of him. General Pichegru was sentenced to penal servitude in French Guiana. Exile in Guiana was referred to as the dry guillotine because it so often resulted in death from disease or overwork. His fate was shared by a few dozen other conservative leaders, mostly members of parliament or newspaper editors. A smaller number were given less severe prison sentences in mainland France. All told, the coup of 18 Fructidor was actually a relatively peaceful, orderly affair, if only compared to the chaotic bloodbaths that had followed similar events earlier in the revolution. But that didn't make it any less devastating to the opposition, who were excised from politics with cold, surgical precision. With the legislature now temporarily purged of almost all its conservative members, the remaining independents and republicans began passing resolution after resolution invalidating local assembly elections held earlier in the year. Any member of parliament elected by one of these invalid assemblies lost his seat. By the time they were through, the results had been overturned in the majority of departments in France. Only a small fraction of the detained conservative legislators were actually charged with any crime. But upon release, most of them found they had been legally stripped of their seats during their confinement. The majority faction of the Directory could now govern comfortably with a pliant legislature, but it had cost them dearly. The opposition had been destroyed in the violence of the coup, but so had the last tattered remnants of the government's democratic constitutional legitimacy. Even in the most optimistic assessment, the democratic promise of the revolution was already faint and fading well before Fructidor. Afterwards, it was definitely, indisputably dead. The pendulum between left and right, which had been the defining feature of French politics for years, had finally stopped swinging. The poles at both ends of the spectrum had been totally shattered. There was nothing remaining for that pendulum to oscillate between. The only force left in civilian politics was the rotten center, the majority clique of the directory and men like them, men who had killed, cheated, or slandered too many people on both sides of the political divide to belong in either camp, men who held grimly to power, not to wield it, but because they feared what might happen if they ever gave it up. The grand French political struggle was finally over, and the three surviving directors were the victors. But it was an odd sort of victory. The post-Fructidor Directory was the most secure regime the country had had in a very long time. It had no significant rivals inside the government, and no organized opposition outside it. And yet, the Directory remained massively unpopular. It had no clear constituency or base of support, just a small circle of people connected to the government by self-interest. The consent of the governed came from the fact that the public was disillusioned, apathetic, and didn't have any better alternatives. People just kind of acquiesced. Fructidor was a hollow victory for the majority faction. They won their confrontation with the conservatives, but all of the deeper systemic problems with the regime remained, and they didn't have the means or the inclination to address them. On September 18th, Napoleon made his first statement addressing the recent events in Paris. Quote, Comrades, the émigrés had taken possession of the national legislature, but France's soldiers rallied around the Tree of Liberty, 
and the partisans of tyranny are now in chains. End quote. To hear him tell it, the army was the driving force behind the purge, not the politicians. And I don't think that version of events is actually too far from the truth. Yes, the majority faction had initiated the plot, but the muscle and most of the money that made it a reality had come from Bonaparte and the Army of Italy. The scheming politicians hadn't actually brought very much to the table in this partnership. They provided the impetus for action, and that was about it. Watching the coup unfold, it would have been clear to any shrewd observer that the directors needed the troops far more than the troops needed the directors. The government now owed their position, perhaps even their lives, to the army. Without that division of soldiers, the plotters almost certainly would have been impeached, removed from power, and likely imprisoned, maybe even executed. On the other hand, without the government, well, as we've seen, the military was often forced to feed, clothe, and equip its own soldiers from the fruits of conquest. Soldiers were paid in the name of the government, but the directors actually expected France's armies to be a source of revenue, not an expenditure. The generals didn't even look to Paris for political guidance anymore. They sometimes even took control of diplomacy themselves, although none quite as flagrantly as Bonaparte. It's hard to think of what they were actually getting from the government. They had saved the directory, but for what? What were they getting out of this partnership? That looming question would have profound implications for the future of French politics. The ultimate goal of the coup plotters was not just a solution to their short-term political problems. It was the monopolization of power, the destruction of any rival or potential rival, and complete centralization of all authority within the ruling clique. Fructidor had been a success, but it had actually done very little to bring them closer to that goal. They had destroyed their rivals, but most of the gains of the victory went to the army, which was its own independent institution. All they had really done was exchange their declared rivals for new potential rivals. This shift in power towards the military was an abstract and perhaps unpredictable cost for the coup plotters. But there was also a very tangible and concrete price tag. In exchange for his participation, Napoleon had demanded quite definite and very costly concessions. Avoiding this eventuality had been one of the main reasons the directors chose to approach Lazar Osh rather than Bonaparte. Bonaparte knew he had them over a barrel, and as always, he made them pay dearly. Just like on 13 Vendémiaire, we don't know the exact details of this bargain. Barra and Napoleon would have been fools to commit a politically sensitive criminal conspiracy to paper. And so, just like with 13 Vendémiaire, we have to look at what happened after the event— and use conjecture to get some idea of the conditions of the deal they struck. Napoleon's price for Fructidor seems to have come in the realm of foreign policy. Shortly after the coup, the government in Paris pulled its senior representatives out of the treaty negotiations between Austria and France, leaving Bonaparte as France's sole negotiator. After Fructidor, the senior official in the French diplomatic corps in Italy was a talented young lawyer named Joseph Bonaparte, and you can probably guess who he answered to. Inevitably, the agreement that eventually emerged from these negotiations, the Treaty of Campo Formio, was a nearly perfect realization of Napoleon's foreign policy vision. We'll talk about that treaty more in a future episode. But for now, suffice it to say that Bonaparte's hijacking of French foreign policy was complete. On October 17th, 
he signed the treaty himself in France's name, without permission or even consultation from Paris. The government did not reproach him for doing so. It seemed they had already given him carte blanche. Fructidor made the military the most powerful institution in France, and there could be no question that Napoleon Bonaparte was the most powerful officer in that army. It had been less than two years since he took command of the Army of Italy, and less than four years since he first made his name during the Siege of Toulon. There is an illustrative example of this shift in power towards Bonaparte and the army from the days just after the coup. The directors attempted to continue issuing orders to General Augereau, whose instructions from Napoleon had been only to take part in the coup, and was under no official obligation to continue accepting direction from the government. When the new orders were delivered to divisional staff, they did not pass them along to Augereau, but instead issued an urgent communique to Milan, informing Bonaparte that his authority was being usurped by the politicians. Napoleon went ballistic and responded with one of his favorite tactics, threatening to resign. Quote, No power on earth could induce me to remain in the service after this horrible mark of ingratitude on the part of the government, which came totally unexpectedly. My health is shattered and demands peace and quiet. I feel the need to mingle among my fellow citizens. Too long has a great power remained in my hands. I have always exercised it for the good of my country, so much the worse for those persons who do not believe in virtue and who suspect mine. My conscience and the opinion of posterity will be my reward. End quote. As had now become their habit, the directors backed down, responding, quote, how can you accuse us of ingratitude and unfairness when we have never ceased in giving you our total confidence? You speak of peace and quiet, of your health, of resignation, but you protect the peace and quiet of the Republic, which forbids you to think of your own. Should France lose the fruit of your victories and be forced to conclude a disgraceful peace, it would make us ill. No, worse than that, we would perish. End quote. The government had just purged all its enemies and secured its political survival for the foreseeable future. You'd think they would be the confident ones, unafraid of confrontation and ready to throw their weight around. But all it took was one threatening letter, and the directors were licking Napoleon's boots. On paper, the events of 18 Fructidor had given the majority faction undisputed power. In practice, the political climate was very different, and everyone knew it. When they attempted to give orders directly to Augereau's division, I think the directors were probably trying to test whether the army's loyalty to the government outweighed its loyalty to its commanders. If that was the case, the answer was a resounding no. If Napoleon had chosen this as his moment, ordered his troops to march on Paris, deposed the directory, and installed himself in some kind of supreme political authority, I think it's likely he would have succeeded. It would not have been the most opportune moment, either for his own interests or for France, but I think it could have been done. As we know, Napoleon was already dreaming of wielding political power in France, but for the moment, his ambitions led him elsewhere. For one thing, he had to finish negotiating this treaty with Austria, and shepherding his Italian puppet states through their first shaky months of Republican government. He also had further military ambitions to pursue. Napoleon wanted to get another conquest under his belt before throwing himself fully into politics, 
something even grander than the first Italian campaign, larger in scale and more audacious in conception. He wanted to show France and the world that his performance in Italy was no fluke, and force the British to the negotiating table, just as he had the Austrians. And of course, in doing all this, secure his own reputation as the man who could deliver peace at the point of a bayonet, and his place in the pantheon of great commanders. As he carried on his negotiations with the Habsburgs, Napoleon was already laying the groundwork for this audacious new venture. He was looking south, towards the eastern Mediterranean, and ultimately to Egypt. Next time, we'll take a closer look at the Treaty of Campo Formio, and lay our own narrative groundwork for the expedition to Egypt. Until then, thanks for listening. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.